Welcome to KGNU's Morning Magazine. It's Monday, January 30th of 2023. I'm your host, Shannon Young. Coming up on today's program, we'll look at policies around domestic animals in the wildlife-urban interface in Telluride. And CityCast Denver chats with the Colorado Sun's environment reporter about some possible proposals ahead of a federal water management deadline coming up this week. After the BBC News headlines, we'll hear the latest commentary from Jim Hightower. Then, on a public affair at 8.35, journalist Douglas Brown speaks with Berena Majewska, a leading Denver attorney working on psychedelic and plant medicine law. Then at 9 a.m., we'll bring you Counterspin, a look at fairness and accuracy in reporting. After that, Greg Schultz will be in the Boulder studio for the Morning Sound Alternative. All that's still ahead this morning, but first, the headlines with KGNU's Luis Licon. Hello, everybody. These are the morning headlines for KGNU. I am Luis Licon. A cold front that dropped temperatures below zero Sunday has triggered a wind chill advisory that will remain in effect until 9 a.m. The National Weather Service warns wind chills factors could reach as low as negative 25 degrees, cold enough to cause frostbite to unexposed skin after 30 minutes. Denver City officials have activated the city's network of shelters and select public buildings to operate as warming centers through the morning of Wednesday, February 1st. Today's low temperatures also mean that Boulder shelters for the homeless will remain open during the day. Libraries and lobbies of recreation centers are also available as warming centers. UC Health has reported a significant increase in frostbite cases this winter season in Denver due to dangerously cold temperatures. The burn unit has already treated more cases than it did last winter. Frostbite occurs when crystals form inside the blood vessels and cell tissue, which can strike quickly in extremely cold conditions. Doctors treating these cases warn that frostbite injuries are preventable and advise taking immediate action if one notices symptoms such as tingling or bluish-gray skin, severe cases of frostbite can lead to amputations, particularly among unhoused individuals. Dozens of demonstrators gathered at the Colorado State Capitol building in Denver over the weekend to protest the police killing of Tyree Nichols in Memphis. Five Memphis police officers brutally beat Nichols during a traffic stop earlier this month. Nichols, a 29-year-old black man, later died from his injuries. Police body cam footage of the beating was released on Friday. The five officers have been fired and charged with murder. The cases have revived calls to go beyond police reform to cutting police budgets. Robin Ferris may leave prison this week after the governor commuted her sentence late last month. KJNU's Jack Armstrong has more. Robin Ferris is Colorado's third longest incarcerated woman and the first black woman to receive a sentence commutation in the state in more than 30 years. Ferris received a sentence of life in prison with no chance of parole for at least 40 years after the murder of her former partner, Beatrice King. Governor Jared Polis granted some form of pardon to 24 others late this last month, with Ferris being the only recipient of immediate parole eligibility. Changes in Colorado law allow Ferris to be reconsidered for parole eligibility eight years before the original sentence offered the right for reconsideration. Colorado law now allows for Ferris's original charge of felony murder to be recategorized as second-degree murder because there was no evidence of premeditation. Ferris fatally shot King during an argument in their apartment. 
Robin Ferris has attempted consideration for clemency multiple times. Ferris's attorneys and relatives say she has changed since her original conviction and has become a mentor for women within the state's prison system and has worked to earn her degree from the University of Colorado Boulder. For KGNU, I'm Jack Armstrong. A committee of Boulder County Democrats selected Kyle Brown on Saturday for the party's vacant seat in House District 12. KGNU's Benita Lee has more. Brown, a Louisville council member, will replace former Democratic State Representative Tracy Burnett, who faces criminal charges for allegedly lying about the location of her residence. Burnett resigned just before the legislative session began three weeks ago, while her Longmont home was redistricted into the more conservative House District 19, Burnett said she lived in a Louisville apartment before being re-elected into the more liberal House District 12. In a speech before the vote, Brown pledged to honor the voices of his new constituents by sponsoring legislation to support climate action, gun violence prevention, better health care access, and increased funding for schools. Four candidates competed for Burnett's spot. Brown won with about 80% of the vote. It was the fourth time this legislative session that vacancy committees have had to select new representatives. For KGNU, I'm Benita Lee. The City of Aurora, in partnership with the Littleton-based American Civil Constructors, will begin Monday building an 8-foot-wide multi-use path as an access point for the High Line Canal Trail and two miles of trail improvements between I-70 and North Colfax Avenue. According to the Aurora Sentinel, the construction project will last through the spring of 2024 and include pedestrian bridges over the canal south of Smith Road and over I-70 east of the Tower Road Interchange. Other improvements include a safer railroad crossing north of Smith Road, grants from the Denver Regional Council of Governments and the Conservation Trust Fund and Adams County help fund an $8.5 million project. It's going to be a cold day today in the Front Range, so please bundle up with extra clothing and drive with caution this morning. We're going to see temperatures between 9 and negative 9 degrees, and in Denver, we're going to see a high of 11 degrees and a low of negative 4 degrees. And in Fort Collins, we're going to see a high of 8 and a low of negative 7. For KGNU, I am Luis Licon. You are listening to The Morning Magazine on KGNU. I'm your host, Shannon Young. Lawson Hill, an affordable housing community outside of Telluride, Colorado, has disallowed dogs since its inception in 1992 in an effort to protect area wildlife. Over the last half decade, an increase in emotional support animals has become a source of tension in the community. And ESA dog owners are beginning to speak out about what they say is an issue of housing discrimination and disability rights. For Rocky Mountain Community Radio, KOTO's Gavin McGough has more. Brettley Danner has lived with anxiety throughout her life. During the pandemic, she says it came back in a big way. And it's like an electric wire inside your body going the whole time. Like, and I've always had that as a kid even, but it kind of went away as I got older. But when I get anxiety and then it just, you know, it just kind of takes over. 
Danner is a property manager in Telluride and has lived in Lawson Hill for the last 20 years. She says when her son was going away to college and her anxiety was resurfacing, she spoke with her therapist, who, Danner says, recommended she get an emotional support animal, or an ESA. And she's like, I really want you to have a dog when you're alone and when your son leaves, besides the anxiety, like that will be only making it worse. So she is a little rescue dog. And we basically take care of each other. In total, there are over 30 registered emotional support dogs in Lawson Hill, and their owners testify to the benefit these dogs bring to their daily lives. Sofia Marcheva, a resident of Lawson who deals with anxiety and depression, says her therapist recommended she get an ESA dog during a period of life when she was finding it difficult to even get out of bed. Because it's a really good way to, you know, get you out of the house, um, you know, exercise, uh, be more social even. So um, when the therapist mentioned that, I brought it to my doctor. She said it's a good idea. And then we just, um, the first thing we did was email the HOA and ask them what the process is. Marcheva reached out to the Lawson Hill Homeowners Association, or HOA, because Lawson has a well-known dog restriction. The restriction dates back to 1991 when Telecam, the developer of the Lawson Hill Planned Unit Development, or PUD, submitted its application to the county. County attorney Amy Markwell explains Colorado Parks and Wildlife flagged the area around Lawson Hill as elk territory. And so their comments and recommendations for uh, wildlife mitigation uh, was that um, there should be no dogs allowed in the development and it should be strictly enforced. So the county's approval of that PUD was conditioned on CPW's recommendation. In order to receive an exception for an emotional support animal, a resident has to apply to the HOA board for an exception, a process which includes a letter from their doctor. If the application is accepted, having an ESA dog comes with a long list of terms and conditions. Danner and Marcheva say when they first received their dogs, they were surprised by the nature of some of the rules, including a requirement they reapply each year. Here's Danner. Because every year we keep having to prove that I have anxiety. Every year they make me prove anxiety, I have another anxiety. Like they're just, they don't even understand what anxiety is and they obviously don't care. They haven't done any research. If you have an anxiety dog, the only person who can walk it outside to go to the bathroom is the person with anxiety. So, you know, if you're a single mom and you're at work, my son can't go out and walk my dog. Beyond the rules themselves, dog owners say they face confusion over their enforcement and over exactly where they are allowed to walk their dog. Even during the course of reporting this story, some of the rules have changed. Then, during COVID, Marcheva had difficulty getting a health center appointment because of high hospital caseloads. This delayed her ability to see a doctor and fill out the application. She says even after speaking with the HOA in the county about the delay, she received a $4,500 fine. Dog owners also speak of intimidation, harassment, and threatening behavior from other Lawson residents when they're out walking their dogs. Here's Marcheva. We've been harassed numerous times to the point that, like, I didn't, I was getting anxiety just by the thought that I'm going to walk on the street. Every time there's a car driving by, I'm like looking for my phone because I, I want to be able to record if somebody's harassed because it has happened so many times. People will just verbally assault you, you know, uh, scream profanities at you. 
take your picture. Dog owners acknowledge they have good relationships with many of their neighbors. But Danner says these incidents happen often enough to have led to a culture of fear amongst dog owners. All the dog owners, they're afraid and it, there's, they're so afraid. I mean, like we all walk with our head down, you know, because you don't want to look at a car because you never know who's going to drive by and flip you off or scream at you. Melissa Ramponi, who lives in Lawson with her family and has had an ESA dog named Lily for the last several years, says she has been cussed out, received intimidating emails, and felt that she and her daughter specifically were under surveillance. So as females get one response, and the males get very little confrontation. Mm -hmm. Dad's big guy, and there have been people who have been terribly cussed at, terribly. And they, she just, the one I'm thinking of, she just can't come out with it. For but it's been terrible. Last year, Marcheva began to research protections for Americans living with disabilities, and eventually filed a discrimination complaint against the HOA. This led to an investigation by the Colorado Civil Rights Division. Last December, the investigation concluded, quote, there is sufficient evidence to support Marcheva's claims of discrimination, unquote. The investigation found that Marcheva has faced, quote, processes unreasonably conditioned and termed and subjected her to unequal conditions based on her disability, unquote. The HOA leadership declined to be interviewed for this story and in an email stated it, quote, would be inappropriate to speak about a civil complaint that has not been resolved through the process laid out yet, unquote. Separately, San Miguel County says they are surprised by the decision, but will work with the Colorado Civil Rights Division to make any needed changes. Any outright change to the dog restriction in Lawson will need to come from the community itself. Markwell says Aldosoro Ranch, located above Lawson on the Deep Creek Mesa, originally had a similar dog ban in place, but the community commissioned a new wildlife study in 2015 and eventually reversed that restriction. Markwell says Lawson Hill would have to go through a similar process. It's now on the community to decide whether or not they want to move forward and ask for a, 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 an amendment to the PUD or not. So the county would have no, um, doesn't really have much input in that process because now it is completely within the community to do that. Lawson has grown significantly since its inception and now is home to commercial areas, roughly 160 homes, and substantial vehicular and human traffic. The question of how wildlife presence has changed alongside this growth would require a new CPW study. CPW does not tag animals or monitor herd populations in the area, but District Wildlife Manager Mark Caddy says elk still tend to move out of the Prospect Basin, across the valley floor, and up to the mesa around El Desoro. Caddy says that while elk are still in the area, the threat posed by dogs is not specific to Lawson Hill, but is a general concern throughout the entire Telluride area. Well, I think most of it's just the general concerns that come with living in an area that's got minimum amount of uh, movement corridors for animals. I mean, the big thing we always worry about up there is, you know, dogs, especially dogs off leash, uh, you know, one, them chasing animals, but then them, those animals also being chased by other critters that move through there, such as mountain lions and bobcats and uh, bears. I mean, you know, those animals can definitely kill those, kill a domestic dog easily. Uh, you know, those are, the, those are some of the issues that we run into everywhere where we have humans and their pets. 
Marcheva says whatever happens with her case specifically, her main hope is ESA dog owners will have some peace of mind and be treated with respect. I would like for people with disabilities or people that are in disadvantage to be allowed um, to live their lives and, and the harassment of people in this, with disabilities is, is just not, it should not happen anywhere. Conciliation between Marcheva, the HOA, and the county is still in its early stages. For KOTO, this is Gavin McGough. The federal government has imposed a February 1st deadline for the seven Colorado River Basin states to come up with a new conservation plan. So what would be realistic for us in the Denver metro area to contribute? CityCast Denver host Bree Davies spoke with Colorado Sun environment reporter Michael Booth about a MacGyver-esque wastewater recycling system in Aurora. You've written a couple stories on on different aspects of water, water conservation and and things like that. And so I'd like to really start there. Aurora is doing something really innovative with their wastewater. Tell me about this new project. The cities that are trying to conserve water um, are also doing it because it's cheaper, as Aurora puts it, to use the water you already own over again than it is to try and go out and buy new water on the market, which can sometimes cost $20,000 an acre foot. So that's a lot of money and people can't afford to pay that themselves and the city can't afford to subsidize it that much. So they're trying to reuse the water. So the method that Aurora uses that the federal government calls innovative and everybody should try to be repeating, the water that Aurorans use when they turn on the tap for brushing their teeth or washing the dishes, flushing the toilets, works its way down into the wastewater system that Aurora has, and then eventually works its way down through various pipes and drainages into the metro wastewater system on the South Platte. So Aurora lets its water go down the river a couple of dozen miles to between Brighton and Fort Lupton. And under the river there, they have built this very complex well system that has these radial arms that go out underneath the river and underneath the gravel bed. And the water, some of the water seeps down from the river through the gravel bed, gets cleaned up along the way naturally, and then down into these wells that kind of vacuum water out, take it to a nearby place where some of the water is then poured over the ground again and is shipped through a pipeline 30 miles south to the water treatment plant, the final water treatment plant that Aurora has uh, next to Aurora Reservoir. And there it gets cleaned up just like any water would that Aurora needs to use with ultraviolet and a couple of other processes to take out all of the particulates and the taste and the smell and any bacteria. And is mixed with clean, pristine mountain water that has run down the mountains into Aurora's different reservoir systems. And then shipped out again into pipelines for people to turn on their taps and use all over again. So that's the complex and very, to me, fascinating uh, without you know getting too far to the deep end of the pool. But to me, it's fascinating <laughs> that you would go through that much just to reuse the water. Yeah. And that's what I want to know is like, is Aurora doing something with this like sort of extra filtration through the riverbed? Is this something that Aurora just decided to do? Is this something other municipalities are doing? Like, do you know the origin of this sort of process? This idea of trying to use the water you've already got when limited resources 
really hamper what you do all across Colorado has been around for a while. Uh, as you see, as you drive around your different metro areas, you see signs that say not using potable water, but they're sprinkling it on lawns. Um, so they're using water that has not been completely cleaned up to drinkable standards, but is perfectly fine to spray on a golf course or uh, a city lawn or a city playing field. And so it took a while to get people used to the idea of drinking water that has been used before. Sure. But it, there's sort of a long-term publicity campaign to get people more used to that idea, not just go, ew, not going to do that, uh, and realize that they have to trust engineering, they have to trust public health, and that Laura doesn't lower its drinking water standard in order to do this. They have very high standards and they meet those with this water. And yes, many metro areas around Colorado are now trying to figure out how to take advantage of Aurora's idea that the water you already own is always going to be cheaper than trying to create a new pipeline or make another major dam and diversion from someone else's river basin. So this is called the Prairie Waters Project. And the federal government took notice of what Aurora was doing and, and gave them $5 million to expand this. Is it something Denver could think about doing like in the near future? Aurora gets a lot of credit from different water people for being advanced in the way it tries to conserve water and reuse water. Denver also has been uh, in the past award-winning in terms of trying to limit the amount of water people use for their landscapes and for their gardens and uh, continues to experiment with different recycling and reuse. So I think everybody's water agency will be doing this in some form or another. So people need to be ready for that. And the reason that the federal government, I think, kind of did this interesting dog and pony show was because we have some big deadlines coming up in Colorado. This water is, as you said, going to be in the news this entire year and beyond. But on February 1st, the seven states in the Colorado basin, where there are 40 million people living who all rely on both Colorado River water and Colorado River generated power, it must come up with a plan to cut up to 20 to 25% of their use this year and next year because drought has taken so much water from the river. And so you need to cut now. No longer just plan for it in the future and have a conference where you talk about what's happening 20 years down the road. It's got to happen now. So those states are supposed to deliver some ideas by February 1st. So I'm not going to disagree. Absolutely. We can always do better at conserving water, especially in urban areas. But we also know that agriculture uses like 80% of Colorado's water and metro area water users are still the ones being asked to cut back. So does something like the Prairie Water Project in Aurora, will it have an impact when we're not the main users of water? You know what I mean? Sure. No, I understand. And that's a really good question. The idea of a city trying to conserve water instead of buying up agriculture water is partly a practical thing. Agriculture water has gotten very expensive. Uh, farmers and towns resist being dried up for a lot of different reasons that we can all understand. But it's also a social reason and a political reason. You have to, in order to advance this, we need agreement in Colorado among the different users. And you need cooperation. And you need everybody buying in and you need people sharing the pain a little bit. Um, agriculture knows that they're going to have to give up a lot of resources. They're going to have to sell their water rights, but they're also, they also hear back every time from rural users and from legislators saying, well, what are you people in the city doing to do your share? You are, you have a lawn that's enormous. Do you need a football <laughs> field sized lawn 
in the suburbs of Colorado. In Denver, do you need Kentucky bluegrass? And do you need to water it? Uh, bluegrass and landscape takes up 50% of the water that a city uses. So the cities are saying, yes, we can contribute. We should. So that's the idea of the federal government coming out with an assistant secretary of the interior, which is a big position, endorsing with a $5 million check an expansion of Aurora's project and saying, yes, do more of this and every other city take note and you should all be doing this. There is still an ongoing shift in mentality. And so what environmental groups and water agencies who are progressive are trying to say is back to that idea of conserving water. You've already got, there's still a huge amount of room in the system to conserve water rather than finding new water, which is expensive and damaging to the environment. And we're still seeing that shift. It requires a lot of engineering, a lot of work by city water agencies, sometimes money. It takes sometimes an act of the legislature or a bill to say, yes, you are allowed to do this and here's a little grant money to do it. So all of these things, um, yes, it's happening because it has to happen. Well, Michael Booth, thank you so much. Thanks for your time. I hope we didn't geek out too much, but it's all <laughs> fascinating and you know, we all need water. You just heard an excerpt from CityCast Denver, the local Denver daily news podcast. Learn more about subscribing to the podcast at denver.citycast.fm or wherever you get your podcasts. That's all for today's Morning Magazine. Special thanks to Luis Licon, Jack Armstrong, Benita Lee, Alexis Kenyon, Gavin McGough, and the CityCast Denver crew for their contributions to today's program. I've been your host and producer, Shannon Young. Stay tuned for a commentary from Jim Hightower. And if you're curious about what the future of psychedelic substances and plant medicines in Colorado will look like and what is legal and illegal under new state law, listen in at 835 for some answers. That's coming up after the news headlines from the BBC.